Hello and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godek, and with me today is James L. Sutter. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to have a chance to, to chat with you. I'm a huge, huge Paizo fan, especially Starfinder, but you know Pathfinder oh, as well. You. And to get to 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 talk with somebody who was so instrumental in the creation of both that's you know big stuff for me so thanks for <laughs> well, agreeing well, thank you yeah no this is this is exciting yeah so uh, uh james is the co-creator of both pathfinder and starfinder role-playing games having worked for paizo from 2004 to 2017 where he started as an editor on dungeon magazine later moved to do foundational work for pathfinder and eventually becoming the creative director in charge of launching starfinder as well as the executive director of the Pathfinder novels line for both Paizo and Tor. Or I guess that's Paizo Tor. It's combined. Yeah, yeah. Joint thing, right? Uh, James is also the author of the forthcoming young adult romance novel, Dark Hearts, that just came out as of this recording yesterday. Congratulations on that. Thank so that's you. Very exciting. Yeah. And that's from Wednesday Books. Um, he yeah, also which is has- part of Macmillan. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's good. That's yeah. Cool. Well, that's you know that's how it is in publishing, right? Where like right. everything is an imprint of something else, you know, right. all the way right. up the chain. Right. right. Uh, you've also had uh, the fantasy novel *Death's Heretic*, which was a finalist for the Compton Crook Award for best first novel. Uh, he also wrote *The Redemption Engine*, which won the 2015 Scribe Award for best original speculative novel. His short stories have appeared in *Nightmare*, uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Escape Pod, and the number one Amazon bestseller, Machine of Death. He's also written comic books, essays in venues like Clark's World and Lightspeed, Queers Destroy Science Fiction, and a wealth of tabletop gaming material and video games. His most recent work in this area includes the Starfinder audio game for Amazon's Alexa, featuring Nathan Fillion and Laura Bailey, as well as the Starfinder Angels of Drift, Angels of the Drift comics from Dynamite coming out again later this month. Uh, when he's not writing, um, which I don't know when that would be, uh, James, <laughs> James has performed with musical acts ranging from metalcore to musical theater. You can find James on his website, uh, jameslsutter.com, and on Twitter at jameslsutter. Uh, so one of the things I, I'll mention, James, is that you have one of the most extensive bios of anybody I've interviewed. And <laughs> I've interviewed some interesting people like Steve Jackson and uh, oh, wow. Jeff Grubb yeah, and stuff. And, um, but yours is just kind of like so extensive across a couple <laughs> genres and stuff. You know? so I think well, that's, thank you. I mean, it's, it's awesome. because it's so random is what it is, right? Oh, you know, wow. It's one of those things where it's all, yeah. it's so many different things because I'm a total yeah. dilettante. I always like, yeah bouncing around to different genres and media and whatnot. Yeah. Well, for the last 20 years, you've been bouncing around, you know, working in the publishing industry. Can you talk about how you got started here in the first place and on this journey and how you became such an accomplished game designer and award-winning author? Well, uh, yeah. So I, it really started for me in college when I started doing journalism for the college paper and I was doing a lot of, you know, 
rock criticism, you know, getting free concert tickets to go to shows. And then that became doing, you know, gonzo journalism where I'd go have adventures and then write about it. And I thought that was great. I thought, oh, this is what I'll do for the rest of my life. And then I got out of college and realized that your average suburban newspaper doesn't want to pay you to go have adventures or write about, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And so I pretty quickly realized that that was not for me. And but I still loved writing. I just didn't like the reporting angle. And so I was Mm -hmm. looking around for a place to put, you know, those journalistic skills to work and realized that Dungeon, Dragon and Amazing Stories were all run by Paizo, which was only a few miles from where I was living. And Mm -hmm. so I saw Amazing Stories was hiring an editor in chief at the time. And so I emailed Lisa Stevens, you know, just sort of cold called and was like, hey, I see you're looking for an editor in chief. I am totally unqualified for that, but here's what I have done. Like, here's my portfolio, what I've written. Do you have any positions available? And I guess she liked my, you know, chutzpah because she brought me in and interviewed me and said, you know, well, we don't have an editorial position open right now, but uh, let's see what we can find. And so that was how I got my first freelance job for Paizo, which was finding images for their new web store, which was new at the time, at a Nicola JPEG. That was like wow. I was a human search <laughs> engine. And then from that, I became uh, the editorial intern on the magazines, which is where I really started learning to do that job. And then that turned into a full-time customer service job. And eventually, within about a year or something like that, maybe two, Um, I made it on to staff at Dungeon as assistant editor and then really just worked my way up through all the changes there, you know, working on the magazines, learning from all the other staff. Uh, And then, you know, we made Pathfinder and then that, you know, kind of blew up both the setting and the game um, and got really popular. And then, you know, I was sort of always the, the fiction guy because, well, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience at the time. I had sold a couple of short stories in college and mm-hmm. right afterwards. So uh, the other folks in the editorial pit kind of said, well, James, you're the fiction guy. So you'll be in charge of like the the Pathfinder's journal, which was in the back of mm-hmm. which was the little serialized fiction in the back of Pathfinder Adventure Path. And then that became the novel line that I got to helm for its entire 40 or 50 books, however many we did there. And that was really a huge training ground for me in terms of just seeing how a novel gets made. You know, I was getting Mm -hmm. to go contact all these experienced, incredibly talented authors and commission Pathfinder novels that went from, you know, sort of the initial inception and finding the author all the way through to publication. And so watching that process, getting to really be elbows deep in it is what gave me both a lot of the skills and the confidence, frankly, to try writing a novel on my own. Um, and so I eventually did the two Pathfinder novels, which, uh, funnily enough, I was never going to write a Pathfinder novel because I figured that as the editor in charge of the line, that would be, right. you know, nepotism it would be self-dealing, right? Like, right. Yeah. how could I believe that I was that I'd gotten it honestly if I gave myself the assignment? Uh, so I wasn't going to do it. And then one day I was printing off some short story submissions on the office printer uh, like you do. Um, And I (laughs) ran to the copy room and Eric Mona, the publisher was standing there reading one of them. Um, And I went, Oh no. Um, And he was saying, Oh, and my name wasn't on it. So he said, Oh, this, 
this is really good. Is this somebody you're considering for the novel line? And I said, well, you know, actually those are mine. Sorry. And he was like, oh, well, you should write a novel. And I explained, well, I can't write a novel because I don't want to like give myself a, you know, a book like that's, that's not kosher. Um, and then he said, I'm your boss. Like, I'm not, you're not giving yourself a novel. I'm telling you to write a novel. And I went, oh, uh, yes, sir. And so that's how I ended up writing Death Seretic. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, the novel line, that was super fun. Getting to work on the comics was, uh, of course, a joy. And it now getting to come back to do more comics with the the new Starfinder Angels of the Drift series uh, has been delightful to come back to those characters in that world. Um, but yeah, so I kind of did a little bit of everything while I was at Paizo um, in terms of development, editing, you know, managing all those different things. And then, of course, when we made Starfinder, I, you know, I got to be the creative director on that and lead the team through, you know, that one year of uh, both joy and hell as we had a year mm -hmm. to get the book you know, the game and the core rulebook and everything from an idea to final product. And that was amazing. And obviously the game was a hit. And then I, you know, came back from that Gen Con where we all spent the weekend feeling like rock stars. And I said, yeah. you know, I think this is as good as it gets. I think I should just go out on a high note because it's not going to get any better than this. And so I pretty shortly thereafter stepped down as creative director and left the company to write full time. And so obviously I've still been writing adventures and things, uh, you know, occasionally freelance uh, for both Paizo and for Wizards. You know, I've been doing some Dungeons and Dragons stuff, too. But mostly I've been focusing on fiction, which is where uh, this new young adult novel, Dark Hearts, comes mm -hmm. from, which is about as far from my old stuff as you can get, <laughs> because it's a queer young adult contemporary romance novel set in Seattle. And it's all about falling in love with the boy who stole your chance to be a rock star. And it really, you know, pulls a lot from my own life as an underage musician in Seattle and also my own experiences coming out and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of brings us to today. Wow. You know, that's quite a whole set of careers in there such a, <laughs> no, you know right? you think about it you know for somebody who's so young you know to have have accomplished so much here over, over time well um, i got you, i got an early start because i started at paizo i graduated college when i was 20 and so mm -hmm. and immediately uh fell in at paizo within six months of getting out uh mm -hmm. so i literally started working at paizo before i was old enough to drink I couldn't go to the bar with the coworkers. Right, right, right. Wow. You know, you mentioned Dark Hearts, the novel that was just uh, released yesterday. Um, you said it's kind of inspired by your, your own life growing up. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that novel and why you decided to share that experience uh, in the form of a young adult novel like that? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so the novel is all about, uh, this guy, David, he's the main character who in middle school, he formed a band with his best friends and, you know, they, they played a bunch, got pretty good, but then everybody's egos got big and he stormed mm. out. But as soon as he stormed out, the band got huge without him. So now he's 17. He's uh. stuck in high school as a normal kid while his former best friends and bandmates are out there being world famous pop stars. So he's obviously very bitter about this, but then when tragedy throws him and the lead singer back into contact, 
they start sort of remembering why their friendship existed in the first place and then also find that they actually are kind of into each other, which they never suspected before. You know, David's always thought he was straight, but suddenly he finds himself mm. falling for this, uh, his frenemy. And so they begin sort of secretly dating. Uh, and as they do, David starts to think, well, maybe this is my chance to get back in the band and get the fame and fortune that I've been denied. But of course, anytime you start thinking, oh, what yeah. can I use my romantic partner to get? Uh, things go things go south real quickly. So, yeah, so the story really, for me, it, like I said, it was about a lot of things. But as when I was, you know, so I started a punk band when I was 15. And, you know, while we never got huge, we, we played a lot. You know, we got on the radio a couple of times. You know, it was really mm -hmm. fun and was kind of all-consuming for me. I thought of myself as a band guy. But I can remember being like 18 and watching younger bands coming up behind me, you know, getting big, getting signed and really feeling like I'd missed my shot. Like I was a has been, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and especially once the band broke up, you know, you think of a 19 year old thinking, well, I guess I'm washed up. I guess I like that's all over. You know, it feels at, now at 39, looking back, it feels silly to think how about how sure I was that my life was over at that point. But mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of kids walking around with that, you know, whether it's for music or theater or sports, that idea of you thought you were going to be a success right out of high school and then you weren't. What do you do with that? Because most people do not become child stars and most people do not become right. rock stars. Right. So what do you do when the labels you use to define yourself as, you know, a future rock star or a future whatever uh, no longer seem to apply. And so that was something that I really wrestled with. Uh, but also it kind of dovetailed nicely into the question of, you know, it took me until I was 20 to realize I was bisexual. And I think that that was another place where the labels were really hard for me, you know, where I'd always mm -hmm. thought I was one person and then, you know, sort of realized like, oh, there's, there's more here than I thought there was, but I wasn't sure, like, could I claim the label? Was I queer enough for the label? You know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And mm -hmm. so just all of those questions of identity really sort of swirled around and were things that I wanted to put into a young adult novel because there's things that I wish that somebody had talked with me about when I was that age. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of me just like processing and talking to teenage me through the book. Uh, but at mm -hmm. the same time, you know, the real reason I started writing it is because when the pandemic hit, I was working on a big, you know, dystopian space opera kind of thing. And I just lost steam because the world was so dark at the time. Mm -hmm. And I started reading a bunch of young adult romance and, you know, rom-coms just to cheer myself up. And it was so fun. And I have this thing where it is almost impossible for me to consume really good art and not be immediately inspired to try and kind of imitate mm -hmm. it and see like, well, mm -hmm. you know, if I, it doesn't matter that I've spent my whole life playing, you know, like punk and metal. If I hear a, you know, really good bluegrass band, I'll be like, I wonder if I could do that. Maybe I should buy a banjo, you know? Um, I have, in fact, bought a banjo for that exact reason. Still don't play it well. Um, but uh, but so, you know, I was feeling that. And then I ran across what really sparked it was I ran across the Wikipedia entry for Stuart Sutcliffe, who was the original bassist for the Beatles and left right before they got huge. Right. Wow. And I was just thinking... God, what would it have been like 
to have walked away from a band and then watched them become immortal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then of course, because my head was in this young adult romance space, my next question was, and then what if you fell in love with one of those guys? (laughs) And so I, you know, immediately just jumped out of bed and started typing and wrote the first couple chapters and then sort of like sat and looked at it and went, it doesn't make any sense for me to write this, but like, I'm a RPG and science fiction fantasy guy. Like my literary agent does science fiction fantasy. Like everything in my career sense tells me that I should be just focused on getting this, you know, space horror thing done and like, let this go. Mm -hmm. But it just felt too good. Like sometimes when you're writing something, it just flows and when that happens, I feel like you got to just ride that horse. And so I kind of, without telling my my agent at the time, I sort of put that book aside and started just writing this young adult romance. And it was the quickest, most fun manuscript I'd ever written. And then when I got done, I went, you know, I think this is pretty good. And so it was still, you know, it was still another year before I was able to find the right literary agent and sell it. Mm-hmm. But now it's you know, like we said, it just came out, but it's on track to being kind of the most successful thing I've ever written, I think. Wow. Uh, Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to measure these things, right? Because like, you know, there's a million copies of Pathfinder and Starfinder out there, but for being something that just, you know, that I I got to write that was just me rather than collaborating with a team. And I love collaboration, but there's also something really fun to just, this came entirely out of my brain. And so, you know, within those metrics, it seems to be doing pretty well. And so I I guess I'm a young adult romance author now. <laughs> Didn't expect it. Well, I think you're uh, you're due for, a, what, a six or seven book series then, if that's the case, right? Well, so the second one, uh, fortunately, they did buy the book in a two-book contract. Nice. And so uh, I'm already finishing up the second book. It's not a direct sequel, but it's still another right. young adult, queer young adult romance set in kind of the Seattle area. So... Hopefully that'll hit in another year or so. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm just frantically trying to get this book launched and make sure that Dark Hearts makes it out to as many people as possible. So fingers crossed. Uh, and how's your uh, screenwriting? Any good? <laughs> you you know I've never <laughs> actually done screenwriting. That's like one of the few you know, and it's not that different from comics. Um, yeah. And I've I've looked into it, but. It's one of those things where I feel like I've got to draw a line and focus somewhere. Right? <laughs> you know, like, Why I start can't... now, though? I, I know, I know. Like it's, it's, it's advice that I've never taken before. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, very cool. Well, that's that's neat. You know, um, kind of along those lines. You know, it's it- interesting. I I was just looking through, um, actually, a Twitter feed, looking at uh, what's been going on in the tabletop RPG industry of late. You know. Queer representation has changed a lot over 20 years. What did I, it look like when you first joined uh, Paizo? Oh, the, there and, wasn't and any. You know, yeah. um, and actually that's something that I am really proud of Paizo, especially, you know, early Paizo. I mean, like it's continued to be great. And like they continue to, the folks who are over there right now are continuing to really push representation and inclusivity. Right. And it's amazing. And like all respect to them. But I also have like I have to shout out folks like Wes Schneider and Judy mm-hmm. Bauer and some of the like sort of mm-hmm. old school Paizo people right. who were really pushing early on 
to get representation in there at a time when nobody was doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And like the fact that we had, you know, queer iconics pretty early on in Pathfinder and some of those things, uh, you know, it, it might seem small in the face of what's happening now, but like, I feel like in a lot of the ways those folks were the people who got that pebble rolling, you know? And Mm I, I like to, you know, that became an avalanche, um, and I like to think that I helped some with that, you know, but, uh, but also we all kind of, we all kind of grew up with it. You know, I, I think people often mm-hmm. don't realize how young everybody was when we started right. Pathfinder and whatnot. I mean, like I said, I started in the game industry when I was 20 and, you know, my mm-hmm. coworkers were older than me, but like by three years, Ooh, you know, which <laughs> like felt like a big deal at the time where it's like, Oh, these guys yeah. are so much older than me, but like, right. They, they were like 25, you know, so we were all really growing up together in public, um, which is why I think you'll you see the game evolve, like the content we were putting out, because mm-hmm. there's so much that we learned along the way. Like I learned a tremendous amount, even just, you know, like, for instance, I will say it's not necessarily about queer representation, but just about gender balance and things like mm-hmm. that. You know, that was something that when we were all working on the magazines, like, you know, maybe we were theoretically thinking about it a little bit, but it wasn't really in our heads. Uh, and it wasn't until I specifically remember Judy Bauer, who was an editor, uh, one of the main editors at Paizo. Um, when she came in, she started just keeping a tally for every adventure or mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. document or whatever. And at the end, when she handed back your document after editing it, she would hand you the tally and say, all right, here's how many named male characters you have. And here's how many named female characters you have. And even when we thought we'd done well, like usually we didn't actually have parity. You know, there usually wasn't balance. Right. And it just took somebody, you know, just sort of, you know, it, it wasn't. <laughs> and I, I give so much respect to Judy because it wasn't even like she, you know, beat us over the head with it. Um, she was just like, hey, here is how you were falling short. <laughs> and we all went, oh, and then we fixed it. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just a series. I feel like a lot of the ways Paizo changed for the better were just a series of people coming in, picking an issue and making a difference. And then Mm -hmm. everybody like, you know, to the credit of the folks working there, I think that it was always, you know, once once something was pointed out to you, you went, oh, oh, geez, like (laughs) I should have been doing better, you know, Um, and uh, and then we did. And so I think that, yeah, I I think the landscape has gotten a lot better. And I think other game companies also, like there's a ton of queer stuff out there now. I think Mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons does a great job with that now. I think that, you know, and of course the indie games has always, you know, that scene has always had a really diverse array of creators. Um, But yeah, I I think in a lot of ways things are getting better, which doesn't mean there's not room for improvement, but it's come so far from, I mean, it was not that long ago when, you know, issues of race and gender and sexuality were just like not even talked about in the game industry. Right. You know, you would right. It was it wasn't that long ago that people were still playing where genders had different stats, you know, <laughs> like or so. Uh, yeah, it's really heartening to see. Cool. You know, you were talking about um, the start of Starfinder and how you had it one year from idea to getting yeah. it out there where it sold out at Gen Con. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the difference between 
how Pathfinder came to be and how Starfinder came to be those processes and kind of uh, the reasoning for both of them, I guess. Yeah. Well, so Pathfinder, <laughs> Pathfinder was a game of necessity because we'd been making the official Dungeons and Dragons magazines, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then, but that was under license from wizards. And so when the license went away, we needed something to put out. Like we didn't, all we knew how to do was adventures and, you know, and setting material, but we didn't have a game to do it for. We didn't have a license. And so we said, okay, well, we'll make our own setting and publish our own adventures because that's what we know how to do. And we'll just do it for the 3.5 rule set and that'll be fine. Um, And we did that for maybe a year, uh, maybe more. um, And that was where Pathfinder Adventure Path came from, was basically just us taking the best of what we did in the magazines because Adventure Paths were still a pretty new idea at the time. Mm -hmm. We said, like, this is a thing that we've really been kicking ass at. Uh, And so, like, this will be the thing that we that we stake our claim on. Um, And so we did that. And then the fourth edition thing happened where in addition to the edition change itself, you know, the rules set uh, people had varying opinions on it, but also just contractually, there was a lot of stuff that made it would have made it very difficult for us to make Mm -hmm. fourth edition content and keep our business model. And so that's where we said, well, 3.5 3.5 is still open so we can take that we can file off the you know the serial numbers in some ways i mean in some ways we didn't even um right. and but we can also make all the updates that people have wanted for a long time and then we can release it as this new game which we called Pathfinder and which you know even at the time a lot of people called it 3.75 because it really was right. like the same rules just right, updated right, right. uh and it turns out that there were enough people who liked Pathfinder and who were frustrated by fourth edition that we got a ton of people giving it a shot. And then once they did, we had all this momentum. And I think really, you know, we were just, the team was just doing really good work. You know, I felt like the, the setting was so vibrant. The adventures were so good. The game was really, you know, was fun and it was familiar to people, but there were also new things. And I feel like we just, hit you know sometimes you get that perfect storm where mm-hmm. everything you know was just bringing people in left and right and we were able to build that up and build out the worlds and really kind of build the company into what it became and so but that was you know by the skin of our teeth nobody could have expected that that would happen i mean i i literally i remember when the magazines went away i remember sitting in that meeting and thinking i could go back to grad school like I'm only I'm only you know 23 yeah. or whatever. Like this is this is fine. Like I <laughs> I'll be okay. Um, but fortunately, I didn't have to. And uh, so that was a very different situation from Starfinder, where we already had you know a very successful company, very successful game, everything was going well. But it was one of those things where we'd always kind of wanted to do a science fantasy setting. You know, like. You can only look at, uh, you know, something like Warhammer and Warhammer 40K for so long without going, mm-hmm. God, that would be fun, wouldn't it? You know, like, why why don't we get to do that with our stuff? And we, you know, I think it had been in everybody's minds. Nobody was quite sure whether it should be a new game, whether it should be a, you know, just a hardcover, uh, you know, release for the Pathfinder role-playing game as sort of like an alternate rule set. You know, what 
what should it be? Um, but then also we knew by the time it happened, I think there was a sense that it wasn't time for Pathfinder second edition, but sooner or later Pathfinder second edition was going to happen. And so if we were ever going to do this whole new game, we had to do it before second edition because second edition was going to take, you know, the whole company, all hands on deck, you know, right. a long time to do. So that's why we ended up with that sort of shortened timeline where I, you know, I remember the meeting where Eric brought us all in and said like, Hey, I think, I think we should do this thing. I think we should do a game and I think it should be Starfinder. And, you know, there was a lot of debate about whether it was even possible with the sort of the timeline and the staff that we had. Um, and the way I remember it, I could I could be wrong. The way I remember it is that it was like on a Friday um, and we all sort of left the meeting with uh, Eric being like, OK, well, let's just think about it and we'll talk about it on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I remember going home and thinking about it. And at the time I was, you know, the executive editor working on the novel line, like managing the editors, uh, the editing team. And then but. You know, I had loved, I had always loved the science fiction and elements of Pathfinder. You know, I had written a book called Distant Worlds for mm -hmm. Pathfinder that was detailing Pathfinder's solar system. So it was very much sort of the science fiction, science fantasy supplement for the game. And it had been very popular, like the fans really liked it. And so, you know, I thought about it and then I came in on Monday and went into Eric's office and said, hey, I think we can do this game. I think we should do this game, G you know, give it to, give it to me and give me a year and I will give you this game. And Eric kind of went, okay, it's yours, you know, and that's how I became creative director. And, yeah. you know, and then it just became a flat out race, especially because, you know, in the beginning we, you know, we didn't have a team set up. We didn't have right. dedicated staff. So I'm, you know, pulling bits and pieces from, everybody every department as i can and then as things went on we slowly got you know that structure set up but it was just a, a flat out sprint from the very beginning and it was fun but it was also grueling uh because there was just so much that we had to decide you know like what is this game mm -hmm. going to be is it going to be set in the same setting as pathfinder you know is it going to be you know uh are we going to have the same classes are we going to have new classes are we going to have the same species or is it going to be new player races you know that kind of stuff there was so much to be decided and then there was just so much work to do to build a new game you know that and so you know we had you know when i say everybody was involved i mean obviously you know you had the designers working on classes you had developers you know working on gameplay and all the setting stuff but you know the the art department doing incredible work with all the you know concept art and everything but then also you had Right. Like the customer service department saved our butt because uh, like a week before the book went to print, uh, you know, we had had uh, a particular like rules subsystem. It was actually the abilities section mm -hmm. that we had a system that was very mathematically elegant, but was a little bit uh, fiddly. And so uh, the way I remember it is that it was Amanda Hammond was like, hey, we need to we should just test this one more time. And she took it up to the customer service department and had them make characters and came back an hour later and just said, they hate it. Like it's too hard. It's too frustrating. And we went, yeah. Oh no. And so, you know, we brought everybody into the office and shut the door and said, okay, we need to find a new system immediately. And, 
you know, fortunately we did. I, uh, you know, people tossed out different ideas. I think in the end, uh, Stephen Radney McFarland, one of the design team proposed the one that we finally went with. And so that was something where, you know, he proposed something. We all went, okay, that could work. And, you know, I made him describe it to me again, very carefully. And I went, okay. And I went in my office and I closed the door and I wrote that chapter. And then like we edited it and like sent the book to print. Like it was pretty much wow. just like, wow. here we go. Um, and so there was a lot of stuff like that where it was, uh, there were just such high expectations for the game in a good way. But like we knew the goals were, it needs to be as mechanically robust as Pathfinder, but it also needs to be easier to learn. It needs to be a more beautiful presentation with more art. It needs to be, uh, you know, it needs to have setting material. It needs to have rules for converting Pathfinder stuff. It needs to have a Starship combat mini game. You know, it just, Mm -hmm. there were so many things that we needed to get in there. It would have been a thousand page book, but it also had to be shorter than the Pathfinder core rule book. That was my, my, uh, you know, specification from Eric. And so, you know, we, we did it. I spent so much time boiling down everybody's ideas, you know, cause so many people had so many good ideas and a lot of my job as creative director was just to manage that pagination and try to figure out, okay, how can we do this in five pages? How can we do this in two pages? You know, how can we get all the cool stuff in there, but still, you know, pull this project off? Um, and I think the game actually really benefited from that in the end, because I think mm-hmm. everything that's in the core rulebook had to, you know, knife fight for the right to be in there. Right, you know? right. So, uh, So I'm super proud of it. Yeah, no, it's great. Were you surprised at how well it was received at Gen Con? Yes and no. I mean, I think we knew that it was good, you know, and we knew also that it was beautiful. Like the art that, you know, Sarah Robinson was the, you know, Mm -hmm. the art director on it. And there was just so much good art in there that anybody who stopped by the booth and flipped through a copy was blown away. So that part didn't surprise me because I felt the same way, you know, like Mm -hmm. going every time I flipped through like the setting chapter and just saw those big, you know, two page illustrations of these planets. I went, Oh, this is, this is what I want in an RPG book. So that part didn't surprise me, but you know, I did, you can never predict how people will react. And so we were just really uh, elated that folks were so into it and that the Pathfinder crew sort of embraced it with open arms. Um, And also frankly, that lots of other people did as well, you know? Uh, So yeah, I would say we hoped, but you never know. So I'm a huge Starfinder fan. So I'm really glad that you did that. I, I was able to pick it up right after Gen Con. Um, oh, great. Yeah, I actually was in a group with Scott Kime, who you probably yeah, might have yeah, known yeah, before. Yeah, of course. And, and as soon as Starfinder came out and he said, hey, there's this cool thing coming out. We Maybe we should try that. And so got right into it right uh, right from the beginning there. And he told me coming when he came back from Gen Con that they were so overwhelmed that it sold out like like the oh, first yeah. day on uh, you know, Gen Con or or by Saturday, I think. Oh, yeah. There were, there were lines yeah, just yeah, like, you yeah. know, across the convention center. Yeah. And I didn't even know that it, it had been really marketed that much. So uh, it was just crazy. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it had. It was a very like word of mouth thing. And obviously, you know, right. like the marketing right. team at Paizo, 
did a good job. But I think, you know, uh, I actually think with a lot of our games, word of mouth had always been sort of Paizo's primary sales approach. Um, And I think the fact that there were so many people who were already dedicated Pathfinder fans helped a lot because I think that this was something that people had been in to some degree asking for for a long time. Right. I mean, it's something that we yeah. internally had been asking for for a long time. Like everybody wanted to work on this thing. And I also mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. the, you know, the steady drumbeat of content that we've been leaking with like, you know, the iconics and their backstories and all that right. stuff. Right. I, I think it just, it showed the love. I think that you can tell, I I feel like I can usually tell when you hit a part, a part of a game book that the author was just in love with, that mm-hmm. they really, you know, it wasn't just, well, this is good enough. It was like, no, no, this is, this is my heart and soul on the page. And I feel like that was happening so often with Starfinder where people were just throwing themselves into it. You know, I mean, I know that's, that's how I feel about, you know, a lot of the iconic characters and, mm-hmm. you know, especially the sections that I was working on in particular, you know, because I mean, obviously, as creative director, I kind of worked on the whole book. Um, but there are things that I got to write the first draft of as well. And, you know, it was oftentimes setting stuff, you know, playable species, things like that. And I can even look at that for myself and just see how much I was enjoying the chance mm-hmm. to explore all this new territory, which was right. always my favorite part of working in the role-playing game industry. You know, from the beginning, my favorite thing is world building when there's a blank canvas or an almost blank canvas. And so, you know, some of those early gazetteers for Pathfinder that I got to write, you know, stuff where it was like, hey, here's Kionan. Tell us, you know, tell us everything about Kionan, you know, or design all the locations in Belkson or even like Varicia. You know, Varicia mm-hmm. was James Jacobs's baby originally. But when he first brought it in, he had, you know, a few locations on the map. Right. And then there was a lot of empty space. And so in, I think, Pathfinder Adventure Path number three, he handed me that map and said, fill out the rest. And so getting to go through there and, yeah. you know, just populate this map with locations and adventure stuff, uh, when that would come to be, you know, would come to be one of the hearts of the campaign setting. But at the time, we just didn't know anything. Right. And I love that feeling of there could be anything here. Um, which is why so many times over the years, the stuff that I worked on was, you know, finding little sections of the setting that nobody else particularly cared about and then saying, mm-hmm. uh, hey, folks, can I just like, can I just have this? Can I do a book that is the whole solar system or can I do a book that is the first world? You know, like, can I just make up all the all the fey gods, you know, and people mm-hmm. would go, yeah, OK, sure. You know, um, and that's that's always been my favorite when I had free reign to just go bonkers. And so Starfinder obviously was kind of the same thing, just at an even larger scale. Like it was all uncharted territory. Wow. Yeah. That, you know, that kind of makes me think why you were able to transition over to fiction writing so well, because Mm. it's the same thing. It's you're completely given free reign over to whatever you want to do. There is not even, you know, a basic framework in there for you. So, yeah, I mean, and sometimes that can be terrifying, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a truly blank canvas, uh, I can get paralyzed like anybody else. But, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you have just a little bit of restriction, right? If you know, okay, this is, you know, the solar system 
of Pathfinder, but in the future, like you've got a starting point, you've got, you know, some touchstones, but then you can just go nuts. Uh, like I, I really like working that way where I have just like a seed and then everything else is, uh, kind of improvised. Mm-hmm. So how does your write, writing differ, you know, when you're approaching uh, writing for an RPG, right? Tabletop RPG, writing for a novel of your own, right? Or something based in yeah. Pathfinder or writing a comic. You know, that's like three completely different styles that you're yeah. able to tackle. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, for novels and comics, I would say my writing process there has actually gotten closer over the years where they've, uh, I use Hmm. the same process for both because what I've realized is that in storytelling, for me, it's almost always about character arcs. And so the thing that I'll do for both, like for the new Starfinder comic series or for even a, you know, a young adult romance novel, like I'll go through and list all the characters and then I will figure out, you know, sort of what issue they're wrestling with. Like what is the sort of emotional heart of this character? What is their fear? What is their misbelief about the world? And then how over the course of the story does that change? You know, usually what it comes down to for me is like, what is the sort of lesson that I want this character to learn? And so I'll say, okay, well, I want this character to, at the beginning of the book, be afraid to let anybody close to them emotionally. And then by the end, I want them to be confident enough to hmm. to allow that to allow the possibility of being of being hurt uh in order to in order to let people in and so you know once i've got those start and end points uh i'm very actually mathematical about plotting out you know that character arc of okay well i need you know whatever it is seven beats right. in here so that i uh i can make sure that i go at the right pace. You know, I feel like pacing of character change is sort of, mm-hmm. and like emotional growth is the most important thing. And so having it really charted out where it's like, okay, here's the start, the end, the midpoint, you know, here's the point where they start to, you know, get an inkling of how they're going to need to change, but they reject it, and, you know, and, or here's, you know, the point at the end where they were changing, but then uh, something goes wrong and confirms their negative beliefs about the world. And so everything blows up in their face. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I chart out those plot beats and I do that for every character and also oftentimes for every relationship. So mm-hmm. uh, how are two characters going to change and how they relate to each other over the course of the right. story? And I find that once I have all those threads and have them all chopped up into individual beats, I can start putting those together like puzzle pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. And what that does is it allows me to make sure that in every scene, regardless of what is happening in the plot, right? Like whether it's a space battle or a dragon attack or whatever, I always want to know what's going on emotionally inside the characters, because I think that's what adds extra depth and flavor to the scene. So like it's, it's fun to have a big action sequence and I love writing big splashy action sequences, but the only thing that makes a laser gun battle better is if it's a laser gun battle that also in some way has, you know, the hero thinking about their relationship with their partner and the partner thinking about how they need to, you know, change how they're living, you know, like those internal states are what give the action weight. And so, uh, that's something that I always keep in mind. And then obviously 
you know, world building and writing for games is a totally different thing. But uh, there I get to indulge a lot more of my just sort of improv techniques with writing setting material. I love the stream of consciousness where you just sort of sit down and go, all right, well, let's what sort of weirdness could I come up with off the top of my head? And I just start mm-hmm. writing. And some, you know, sometimes I have a, an idea that I'm shooting towards, but sometimes like if I've just got a blank map that I'm filling stuff up, I love treating it as a game for myself. Like I'll, you know, make up a bunch of uh, location names and just sort of randomly, and then try to figure out a backstory that would justify them, you know, mm-hmm. or I'll put dots on the map and say, okay, why is this dot here? You know, like this dot is in, you know, if this dot is on a river, well, probably it's a city and what, you know, probably that city is, uh, has a lot of water power or maybe they, you know, are a shipping concern or whatever. But if this dot is over here in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. well, why is it in the middle of nowhere? There must be a reason, you know, what magical resource do they have there? Why is it a crossroads? Is there, you know, is it a ruined city? Is it, you know, some sort of magical site that's really hard to get to, you know? And so I just like, I love playing those games for myself where I give myself a seed without actually knowing the answer. And then I try to find the answer and like whatever the most interesting answer would be. Wow. You know, so this is really informative to me actually hearing your process. I think this is really cool. Thinking about how I can do things better myself, quite frankly, now, um, Along those lines, what advice do you have for people who are interested in, in becoming uh, RPG writers or novelists, which I've aspired to do both, uh, or comics? I mean, so I think the answer for all of those is you just have to do it and you have to put yourself yeah. out there. Um, so, for instance, if you want to be a novelist, the only way to be a novelist is to write a novel and then send out, you know, query letters to literary agents or, I mean, self-publish if you want. But I really, I've really appreciated the traditional publishing process. So if mm-hmm. people want to try uh, publishing, you know, conventionally, I think that that's a worthwhile thing to do. You know, self-publishing is awesome, but self-publishing requires a much broader skill set than mm-hmm. novel writing. And you have to want to be a publisher. And there are... <laughs> Right. Having right. worked at a publisher, there's a lot of parts of publishing that are not as fun as writing stories. So uh, I'm personally, I am happy to outsource that to a publisher rather than doing it all myself. But um, but yeah, you just have to write the book. You have to send it out there, query agents and try to make it and accept that you're going to get rejected a million times. Like uh, you never stop getting rejected. I was just talking at a high school the other day and explained to the kids that like, a career in the arts means you never stop getting rejected. I get rejected constantly. And if I ever stop getting rejected, I know that I'm setting my sights too low. You know, you should always like want to be getting rejections because that shows that you're actually striving and trying for the best possible thing you can get. Um, in terms of getting into uh, comics, it's kind of the same way where you need to make something so that you have portfolio pieces to show. Uh, I think that that's, you know, you could probably get in somewhere with just a script, um, like that does happen, but I think if you can find an artist friend, find an artist on, you know, 
DeviantArt or wherever, somebody who's also trying to break in. And if you can team up to just do a four, eight, 12 page kind of mini comic, just to show that you can tell a complete story and that you understand how to write for sequential art like that. I think that goes a long way toward convincing publishers that you're serious because everybody wants to write comics. How do you stand out from the pack? And everything I've learned says that the best way you can do it is by making comics. Now that said, I got in through the side door because, uh, you know, when the Pathfinder comics, uh, which were originally written by Jim Zub, when Zub moved on to doing, you know, a lot of Marvel stuff, uh, he kind of handed the torch off to me and Eric Mona and Wes Schneider. And so we got to, we got to learn on the job. Um, and actually I will recommend everybody. If you want to write comics, go to Jim Zub's website. I think it's just like either jimzub.com or zub.com. He has a whole section of tutorials on how to write comics, how the comics business works, all of that. And I learned everything I know about comics from, (laughs) from Zub. Uh, so it works for me. Maybe it'll work for you (laughs) as well, but I can't recommend that highly enough. Um, and then for getting in with games, I mean, there are contests like RPG Superstar is still going, I believe. Right. Uh, you know, that's a good way to get your name out there. Uh, you can also, there are lots of smaller third-party publishers that uh, oftentimes, you know, they don't have a lot of money, but if you show up and say, hey, I love what you're doing. Uh, here's the work that I've done. They might take a shot on you and you're going to have more luck getting in there than you are mm-hmm. if you go to wizards and say, Hey, I've never published anything before, but I'd love to write for D and D like you're probably not going to get in there, but if you can get in at, you know, a small third party, then you can roll that up into getting an assignment at a large third party. And then from there, maybe you get in with Paizo or wizards or one of the bigger companies or fantasy flight. And I often think of careers in the arts as like a Katamari Damacy. If you remember that game where you're just like rolling your snowball of stuff, Uh, Mm -hmm. like you're always just rolling every little assignment into a bigger assignment and a bigger assignment. And that's, uh, for me, that's how I've done it, where you just, every project that you complete is a stepping stone to the next project. But that means that if you want to get started, it doesn't matter how small your thing is, you know, and if you can't get in at a company, just make something, you know, like it's, uh, there's plenty of free, you know, layout software and stuff online, you know, just write up, you know, write up stats for a a monster and put it on a blog, you know, post it on social media, you know, do a little adventure and release it for free. Do a one page uh, RPG when that comes around each year, you know, Um, just making things so that then when there is an opening somewhere, whether it's an open call or a job application, uh, like you can send in with your application. Here's my portfolio. Here's what I've made. And in the game industry, nobody cares about what degrees you have. Nobody Mm -hmm. cares about anything except can you do the job and can you show that you've already done the job? And that's where I think, uh, you know, that that's what gets you ahead. And I also think working in the game industry uh, is a great way to learn how to do all this stuff. Right. You know, get that internship, apply for the entry level position as a, you know, a developer or an editor or whatever. Or, you know, the same is true also if you want to get into fiction, like the fastest way to level up your writing skills is to read 
read submissions for a magazine you like, you know, every, every small press magazine and all fiction magazines are small press pretty much like everyone I know is overworked and has too many submissions. And so if you come in there and say, Hey, I'll read your slush pile and pick out the good stories. Not only does that get you in, in a way where you're now working with the people who make these decisions, you get to understand their tastes, you get to understand mm-hmm. what they like and don't like, but also just by reading, you know, hundreds of manuscripts, you start to notice the things that bother you as an editor. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know not to do them. You know, my, one of my first jobs uh, on Dungeon Magazine was I was in charge of the slush pile because at the time, Dungeon, people just sent in their adventures. Right. Um, and you would say, are we going to publish this? Yes or no. Um, or they'd send in pitches, I think. Um, and <laughs> there was a time on the message boards, they uh, like, because that was my job that there was a group of them that called me the gray render um, because I was just tearing apart all of these submissions because that was, that was my job was to cull the pile. Uh, but I learned so much about what made a good adventure by reading all of these and seeing what sparks me and what doesn't. And I think that that principle applies to basically every form of art. So if you can work on both sides of the desk, I think it's a huge leg up. Yeah, no. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. I, that last part, especially about going through the slush pile and, and seeing what, what you don't like and yeah. getting an eye for yourself. Cause you get a, self-educate yourself somehow and usually it's you're waiting on other people to tell you oh this is bad you need to do this better here you're training yourself to do it well and it's also learning not just you know what's good or bad but also learning your own tastes right right like i uh i i often tell people you know i spent the first couple years at paizo or at least the first year just learning what was cool just you know i came in not really knowing uh, what I wanted to do in RPGs or like what, uh, what made for good RPG content. And I spent so much time just hanging out with James Jacobs and Wes Schneider and Eric Mona and like all these other folks and just sort of absorbing the media that they liked, you know, learning about, you know, horror from Wes or learning about, or, uh, learning about, you know, dark fantasy stuff from James Jacobs or, uh, you know, old occult stuff from Eric Mona. Like there was so much that I learned that informed my tastes and made it easier for me to a both write stuff that I liked and that I was excited about, but also like it taught me how to write for them too. And like together we sort of formed this more cohesive voice for the game. Um, and that was only possible because we were all reading and watching the same things uh as each other we were all we were always bringing stuff to the table to the communal pot and that was uh that was really an education very cool well it looks like you have a lot of things coming out so uh the book will have just been released yesterday uh dark yeah hearts. yeah please go check out dark hearts yeah. uh the uh, angels of the drift comes out later on in the month um, yeah the first and actually so the first floppy issue you know the monthly Issue number one comes out uh, in late June, but there's a Kickstarter running right now. If you want to just back the uh, the Kickstarter and get the whole hardcover collection when the five issue uh, sort of story arc is complete, uh, you can just go back that right now and be one and done. And when uh, when the series is complete, they'll send you the hardcover. 
That's what I just did this morning. I actually asked oh. for the signed hardcover. So I'd appreciate <laughs> well, a little you. custom message in there. Only 50 yeah, bucks. They, it's a great deal, man. Yeah, yeah. So. If they let me, I think uh I, I have no idea how exactly that signing process yeah, works. That's okay. Gonna, like, no, that's okay. <laughs> wake up and there's a pallet of books at my door. Uh, but but what other but, uh, what other cool stuff do you have coming out? What else is going on? Well, honestly, I mean, between launching Dark Hearts, which has been, you know, right. it's been 18 months between selling wow. the book and wow. it getting published, which is yeah. pretty normal for a novel. Yeah. So, like, I'm really just in that last stretch of spending all my time trying to get the word out. Um, right. And, of course, the comic series is ongoing, so I'm still right. working on that. I just... You know, my inbox right now has some cool art and colors from yeah. uh, the yeah. final issues. Uh, but I'm also, you know, I'm finishing up the next uh, young adult romance novel that will hopefully right. be out the following summer and is all about a teenage ghost hunter. Uh, mm. And yeah, really, that's that is everything that's on my plate right now. You know, I hope there are more Starfinder comics beyond this edition, this initial right. five issue run. But of course, that'll mm -hmm. depend on how the audience likes it. Right. Um, so, so if you want to see more, please do support earlier <laughs> rather than later. Um, you've got, you've got that hardcover option, yeah. so there's no excuse yeah. to wait for it to be done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've been trying desperately to uh, take on fewer freelance projects and really just focus on a couple of big things like the novels right. and the comics, but it's so hard. Every time somebody comes to me and goes, Hey, we've got this awesome adventure. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't you like to write it? And it's like, oh, I would like to write it. You know, that happened to me with um. I thought I was done writing adventures for a while, uh, and then I ended up writing the first adventure of Pathfinder's Gatewalkers Adventure oh, right, Path right, right. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, Patrick Reaney, the developer who yeah. was in charge of it, came to me and said, "Hey, do you want to write? You want to kick off this adventure path?" And I went, "Oh, I don't have time." And then he said, "Okay, so it's going to go to the first world." and other planets and it's going to be like an x-file sort of vibe with like a slender man thing and i was just like ah, you did this on purpose like you <laughs> you purposefully made an adventure that i yeah. couldn't say no to yeah. um and it turns out it was a blast to write and i you know i'm just now finishing up uh running that whole campaign for my home group uh nice. so that's been really really a delight Excellent. Excellent. Well, James, this has been a wonderful opportunity for me to get a chance to chat with you and get to know you. And thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. This is really, it's always fun to be back on No Direction.